I don't know what this world has in store for me. I don't know what my creator or my earth seeks of me, but I know right now isn't about me. It isn't the time for me or any of my white sisters and brothers to sit idly by while our black sisters and brothers are shot and beaten and jailed in the streets of the United States of America. It is inhumane that black people have been systemically terrorized in our country while we, their fellow human beings and countrymen, have done nothing to defend them. Our president does nothing to defend them. In fact, he has publicly instigated violence towards black people and all people of color with his treasonous words and the unleashing of his hounds of men on our people. From ICE agents stripping people of their rights and from their families to federal agents attacking peaceful protesters. We have to do more. That means donating, that means marching, that means re-education for ourselves and our families. That means demanding change, that means standing up and fighting for it. Angela Davis once said, you have to act as if it were possible to radically transform the world and you have to do it all the time. This episode is dedicated to the people fighting and dying trying to make this world and country a better place for all our people. In this episode, I'll try to give you some tools to better understand and ways to better address the systemic and structural racism that plagues this country. Welcome back to Living With Will. So an organization known as Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE, wrote a comprehensive explanation of the forms that racism operate and thrives under. It's our responsibility, they write, as people with integrity to unlearn the lies and misinformation we have learned and to replace them with more truthful and complex understandings of the peoples and cultures around us. So the first form that racism manifests under is known as interpersonal racism. So when a white person takes their misinformation and stereotypes towards others, when they harass and exclude, when they marginalize and discriminate, when they hate or use violence, these are the forms of interpersonal racism. So hate crimes, job or housing discrimination, negative racial comments or slurs, racial profiling, violence by a police officer, these are known as interpersonal racism. It's important to recognize and to understand that the system of racism is much larger than these personal acts. So it, I think it is very essential that I press the point that racism would not be eliminated by ending these individual acts. So if we were to limit our discussion solely to interpersonal actions, we'd end up with a, with a conversation and the impact of a rotten apple situation. And, we, and we've seen this rhetoric as it regards to police over the past few weeks, right? All we need to do is punish and weed out these particular racist individuals and things would be pretty good. But we see this antiquated rhetoric when it comes to not all cops are bad, right? It's that, that doesn't help us move forward. By simply addressing the individual, we can address racism, but we have to understand that it is deeply embedded in the policies and the practices and the very fabric of our institution and the beliefs and values of our culture. One of the ways that our culture keeps racism in, in place is by continuing to focus only on these individual acts of racism. So that is partly the reason today that I want to really unpack all the various forms. So the second form is known as institutional racism. 
Racism operates through the policies, the procedures, and the practices of the institutions within our society. It was built into the policies and procedures and the structure of our society. It was built into the everyday practices of the healthcare system, of the education system, the job market, the housing market, the media, the criminal justice system. These are just to name a few. So that means that it operates both systemically and without the need for individual racist acts. People can simply be following the rules because the rules are set up to reproduce racism. I'll give you... So they weren't racist, right? Okay, so look, I'll put it like this. Back in the day, right, when they wouldn't let black people use water fountains or sit at countertops, whatever evil, sick, twisted shit they weren't allowing black people to do, the people that weren't allowing to do it were following the law. They were acting as law-abiding white citizens. I want us to look at the present, right? Because a lot of the times when we try to tell people to look at the past, they try to tell us to stay in the past and leave it in the past. But let me, let's look at the present. Let's say a white school teacher is teaching her students equally. She's addressing the needs of each individual student. She helps every single student advance to the next grade level. But what if she's teaching in a school or a school system where there are no teachers of color? Where white students are tracked into higher level courses than black students? Where students of color are disciplined more harshly than white students? The curriculum doesn't reflect the contributions of people of color to our society. Then that school is racially discriminatory despite the efforts of the teacher. So you see, racism doesn't necessarily need a racist individual in order to thrive. It is within our institutions. Another form and manifestation of racism is called structural racism. This is the cumulative impact of interpersonal and institutional racism within our society, creating a system of structural racism. So this is where racism and all these different institutions overlap, reinforce, and amplify the different treatments of people of color and the ways that they are treated in relation to white people. And it ensures different life outcomes. This is Racism within the school, the school system, the welfare system, child protective services, the foster care system, all levels of the criminal legal system, they interact to produce a system which disproportionately limits the educational opportunities of young people of color, and it disproportionately disciplines and locks them up. The lack of affordable health care, access to affordable healthy food, coupled with higher exposure to toxic chemicals, other forms of pollution coupled with job discrimination, housing segregation, greater health problems, shorter lifespans, lower wages, and greater levels of poverty for communities of color. Structural racism is reinforced by the many layers of cultural racism in our society. The systemic and pervasive images, pictures, comments, literature, movies, advertisement, media, which consistently portray people of color, Native Americans, and immigrants negatively. Another form of it of cultural racism is cultural appropriation, which is a logical consequence of cultural racism. Cultural appropriation occurs when those of us in the white group take a piece of someone's culture without us having an authentic relationship with those people or without their permission. Often this ends or this is to an end of financially profiting. We exoticize black culture, but we don't value black life. We profit off black culture, but we don't value black life. 
These are the ways that racism is expressed within our society. And it's important for us to reconcile with that fact that racism can be seen on a person-to-person basis, but that it also occurs within our institutions and is ingrained into the fabric of our society. This reality of racism is hard to imagine could be true. White America, we are taught to believe in our institutions. We're taught to believe that our government wants what is best for us and that the American dream is alive and well. But it is important to know that this is reality. There is a war being waged against all of us. Environmentalism, racism, classism, homophobia, ableism, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, xenophobia, they are all intersectional. They are all rooted in the same system of capitalism in which the few profit at the expense of the masses. Daniel Moynihan, a U.S. senator, once said, You're entitled to your own opinion, not to your own fact. And today I will be speaking exclusively to a reality and to the facts of America and the ways in which racism manifests throughout it. So the first example that I'd like to discuss with you all today is the situation of mass incarceration. Now, I think it's important to couple the things that I say today using statistics. I'm not usually a statistics-driven person, um, but I know that they are important to include. So these numbers that I'm about to tell you are the likelihood of imprisonment for U.S. residents born in 2001. One in 17 white men will go to prison. That is in comparison to one in three black men. One in six Latino men. Of the one in 111 white women who will go to prison, one in 18 will be black. One in 45 will be Latina. How is it that a minority of our population is so much more likely to go to prison? Obviously, it's racism, but if you're still not convinced and you think maybe it's because they commit more crime, crime rates have been declining substantially since the early 1990s, but studies suggest that rising imprisonment has not played a major role in this trend. If, if you didn't understand what that statistic was saying or what that study was saying, it's that crime rate is going down, but prison is, prison, imprisonment is going up. The targeting of black and brown people can be in part traced back to the war on drugs, which has disproportionately targeted African-American and black people, and as a result has also reinforced the institutionalized racism embedded in the prison industrial complex. The data that was collected illustrates that although the prevalence of illegal drug use among white men is approximately the same as that among black men, black men are five times as likely to be arrested for drug offenses. I wanted to include some of the ways that we can address the prison situation as it stands. By eliminating mandatory minimum sentences and cutting back on extensive and excessively lengthy sentences, Shifting resources to community-based prevention and treatment for substance abuse. Investing in in interventions that promote strong youth development and respond to delinquency in age-appropriate and evidence-based ways. Examining and addressing the policies and practices, conscious or otherwise, that contribute to racial 
inequity at every stage of the justice system. And by removing barriers that make it harder for individuals with criminal records to turn their lives around. Now, a lot of people are going to look at this and say, well, you know, criminals should be punished and they're going to come out of the woodworks with a lot of, you know, negativity and regurgitated evil. Um, it's a defense mechanism, right? And I want to make sure that we all are armed with ways to, you know, un unpack the mind of someone who is so against this, right? Like I said, we've been so conditioned to believe in our institutions, it's going to be very difficult to convince people of these things. So what are some of the ways that racism is used to massively incarcerate black people and, and other people of color? So one of the many ways is called the school to prison pipeline. The school-to-prison pipeline is often discussed as one of the most problematic issues in education as its role in mass incarceration starts black and brown youth on a track to be incarcerated from childhood. As we try and become a more progressive and inclusive community, school discipline policies have been moving in the opposite direction of progress. Out-of-school suspensions have increased about 10% since 2000. They more than doubled since the 1970s. Black students are three times more likely to be suspended or expelled than white students. This was according to a study done by the Education Department's Office for Civil Rights. Research in Texas found that students who had been suspended are more likely to be held back a grade and to drop out of school entirely. These facts have led to concern among some people, including the Obama administration, that schools have been suspending students too much and need to find other ways to discipline them. So I wanted to include some more statistics that, that show what these numbers can do, right? So black children represent 18% of preschool enrollment, but 48% of preschool children who receive one or more out-of-school suspension. First of all, who the fuck is suspending preschoolers? But I want you to hear clear as day what I'm saying that as early as preschool out of every 10 children attending two of them will be black out of every 10 children suspended 50% of them will be black five students how is that possible I want you to hear these outrageous numbers because we cannot allow this to continue there is a disproportionately high suspension and expulsion rate for students of color. Black students are suspended and expelled at a rate three times greater than white students. On average, 5% of, of white students are suspended. That's compared to 16% of black students. I want to make sure that this is clear. Although this podcast episode is about the racism being faced in black communities, it's very important to note that Native American and Native Alaskan students are also disproportionately suspended and expelled. They represent 1% of the student population, but they are 2% of out-of-school suspensions and 3% of expulsions. How do these numbers correlate? How do they make sense? Suspension of girls of color is also outrageous. Black girls are suspended at a higher rate than girls of any other race or ethnicity, and of most boys. American Indian Native Alaskan girls are the same. While black students represent 16% of student enrollment, they represent 27% of students referred to law enforcement. I need to take a side tangent and address the fact that there are also shocking statistics of students suffering with disabilities being marginalized as well. I don't want to make it seem as if these people are less important. 
I want to acknowledge that this is also a problem. The emphasis and the point of this episode and this conversation we are having is on the importance of black life and the disruptive force of racism within black communities that does not take away from the fact that we need to solve issues of discrimination and prejudice and attain equity and equality for all. In the 1970s, keeping students out of school as a punishment was relatively rare. Fewer than 4% of students were suspended in 1973. That's an al- 73. That's an allow- that is an analysis of education department data by the Southern Poverty Law Center. I'm sorry I'm going to make mistakes while I speak. I'm not a perfect person, and I think it's important that we leave the mistakes in. So you will hear me occasionally stripping up my words. I'll try to keep it as few as possible. What happened in the 70s was growing concern about crime and violence in schools led states and districts to adopt policies that required students to be suspended. As states began adopting these zero-tolerance policies, the number of suspensions and expulsions increased. The suspension rate for all students has nearly doubled since the 1970s. As zero-tolerance policies grew, districts adopted their own versions of broken window theories of policing. The broken windows theory is an emphasis on the importance of cracking down on small offenses in order to make residents feel safer and discourage more serious crimes. In schools, this translated into more suspensions for offenses that previously hadn't warranted them, talking back to teachers, skipping class, or being otherwise disobedient or disruptive. On top of all of this, schools started relying more heavily on actual police. These police were in the form of school resource officers, or SROs, stationed in schools. From from 1997 to 2007, the number of SROs increased by nearly a third. The theory was they were there to protect students, not to police them. I want to remind you, as we've seen time and time again, police are supposed to protect, not police, black communities. But we've seen time and time again, this is not the reality. As often happens with law enforcement, resources that were supposed to be used for a rare occurrence often were used more commonly simply because they were there. About 92,000 students were arrested in schools during the 2011 and 2012 school years, according to the U.S. Department of Education Statistics. Most of these arrests were low-level violations. 74% of arrests in New York City public schools in 2012, according to a report published by the state courts, were for misdemeanors or civil violations. When a school resource officer arrests a student, they refer a student to a law enforcement or juvenile court as a form of discipline. They are turning the student over to the juvenile justice system. A report by the Justice Policy Institute found that schools with officers had five times as many arrests for disorderly conduct as schools without them. The chief judge of the juvenile court in Clayton County, Georgia, has become an outspoken opponent of police in schools and the school-to-prison pipeline after placing cops on school grounds resulting in 11 times as many students getting sent to juvenile court. Black students are suspended and expelled three times more frequently than white students. And while black children make up 16% of all enrolled children in 2011 and 2012, according to federal data, they accounted for 31% of all in-school arrests. For those of you hearing this, 
who might try and say that it must be that black students misbehave or are worse than white students. First of all, that's racist. Secondly, several studies have looked at the relationship between race, behavior, and suspension, and none of them have proven that black students misbehave at higher rates. Not one. A landmark study of Texas discipline policies found that 97% of school suspensions were the choice of school administrators. Only 3% of students had broken rules that made suspension a required punishment, such as carrying a weapon to school. And those discretionary suspensions fell particularly hard on black students. They were 31% more likely to receive a discretionary suspension. I want to be clear that it was not only a choice to punish, but also the severity of the punishment chosen by school administrators was worse if the student was black. I'm trying to paint the picture of what racism truly looks like, not just with individuals or with police, but within our institutions, within our school systems, not just by the system that designed them, but by the men and the women who unknowingly or knowingly continue the system of oppression. Insubordination or willful defiance were some of the many discretionary suspensions and arrests. In California, for example, 40% of all suspensions during 2010 and 2011 school years were for willful defiance. The U.S. Department of Education defined it in 2012 as any behavior that disrupts a classroom. Insubordination was the most common cause of suspension in New York City public schools in 2013 and 2014. In 2006 and 2007, the last year data appeared to be readily available in New York City. Black students, who only made up 20% of the classroom, were 51% of the students suspended for profanity. Black students, who were 20% of the total student population, were 57% of the students suspended for insubordination. Listen to the language. Black students are being suspended from school for insubordination? They're children. Who are the insubordinates to? The arrests by SROs are often vague racist reasons as well. In New York in 2012, one of every six arrests in schools was for a resisting arrest or obstructing a governmental administrator after the student had been in conflict with an officer. This all adds up to say students who are disciplined by schools are more likely to end up in the juvenile justice system and eventually the criminal justice system. Student discipline in middle or high school, 23% of them ended up in contact with a juvenile probation officer. That figure stands at 2% among those not disciplined. Students who have been suspended or expelled are three times more likely to come in contact with the juvenile probation system the following year than the ones who weren't. Please do your research on the school to prison pipeline. I'm only scratching the surface. I just want to paint a picture for you all. The next manifestation of racism that I'd like to talk to you about is called the Ticket to Prison Pipeline. A 2016 survey found that 63% of Americans don't have enough money in savings to cover a $500 emergency. Moreover, fines and fees for minor offenses in turn incentivize law enforcement and courts to ticket and convict those who can least afford it in order to generate revenue. 
As one scholar explains, the turn to fine-only offenses captures poor, underemployed, and otherwise disadvantaged defendants for whom fines and supervision are especially burdensome, while permitting well-resourced defenders to exit the process quickly and relatively unscathed. Finally, as courts turn increasingly to fines and fees to fund their own operations, decriminalization threatens to become a kind of regressive tax, turning the poorest populations into funding for the judiciary and other government budgets. There are constitutional problems created by this type of disparity, and we need to address why these types of policies are in place. The ticketing and charging of individuals for minor infractions allows law enforcement a high level of discretion. It allows for implicit bias of law enforcement officers to influence where they target their enforcement effort. One examination of nationwide data showed that African American people were 3.7 times more likely to be arrested for a common minor offense and over four times more likely to be arrested in many states. Understanding of the role of implicit bias within law enforcement's use of discretion continues to develop. Nevertheless, there is a growing data to show that over-policing in communities of color affects who gets cited or arrested and how often. In California, statewide data collection about racial breakdown of traffic stops is underway pursuant to the new racial profiling data collection law AB 953. For now, there is only scattered data about racial bias in California traffic studies and stops, but in studies in Fresno, San Diego, and Sacramento, it helps show that people of color, particularly African American and Latino people, are more likely to get pulled over for a traffic stop. This disparity is not related to increased wrongdoing. In fact, people of color are more likely to be detained despite not doing anything wrong. As shown by data on stops without citations or citations for non-observable offenses. These findings are similar to those in a study in Ohio which found that after reviewing 312 vehicle or citizen stops, encounters with African American residents were more likely to result in a ticket than stops of white residents. The study also found that there was important differences in the situational context of traffic stops involving African American drivers. It found that regardless of the initial cause of the stop, the most common reason for ticketing an African-American driver was for having a suspended license. The study intimated that there was a cycle of traffic tickets and license suspensions among some African-American drivers and points to a cycle similar to California's where drivers have their licenses suspended for prior tickets or traffic infractions they were unable to pay. These are systemic violations against the impoverished, against community groups, specifically black and brown communities, and we need to address them. I want to bring us back around from the ticketing to the actual criminal justice system. And within the criminal justice system, the prison industrial complex, at the beginning of the 1980s, there were no privately operated adult correctional facilities in the United States. As of 2009, more than 129,000 state and federal prisoners were housed in four private lockups. The prison privatization has become an acceptable practice, and the private prison industry is now a multi-billion dollar business. 
That means there is a direct incentive to arrest and incarcerate people. They profit off incarceration. That is legally allowed in this country. I want to bring light to the 13th Amendment of our Constitution that has clear language stating that slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime. Slavery does not exist in this country anymore except as a punishment for crime. I want to remind you of the numbers that I started us with. One in three black men will go to prison. One in six Latino men. One in 18 black women. One in 45 Latino women. I'm trying to paint a picture for you with the examples of how the educational system, the judicial system, the financial system, and the criminal justice system work together and have fundamentally failed black people and people of color. The ways that black and brown people are raised to be sent to prison is a modern day loophole to enslave people of color through incarceration and it has to be dismantled. A system that directly, directly affects negatively upon the lives of men and women of color need to be corrected. Now that we've addressed situations within the criminal justice system, I believe there is, and like I said, I'm only scratching the surface. Please do your research on these situations. I think it's important that we move into how other forms of discrimination are taking place. Name discrimination and employment disparities. The National Bureau of Faculty Research recently produced a study that shows racial name discrimination is persistent in the workplace. The study revealed that today's workplace is still challenged with leveling the playing field between races and when it comes to hiring. In the study, job applicants with white names, tended, white sounding names, tended to fare better in hiring than candidates with African American sounding names. I already want you to hear the racism in the sentences. African American sounding names, white sounding names. The fact that resumes with white sounding names receive 50% more callbacks on average than resumes with African American sounding names indicates that racial discrimination is still prevalent in the workplace and that name discrimination does in fact exist. Another factor revealed in the study showed the effect of improved credentials on employers' perceptions. It found the effect of improved or higher quality credentials had a greater impact for candidates with white sounding names. while Higher quality credentials had little to no effect on employers reviewing resumes with African American sounding names. So simply based on the name, the way the name sounds, even if that person is perfectly qualified for the job, that will have no effect. What has effect is the way their name sounds. These problems go so far as hair discrimination. There are still far too many cases of black employees and applicants denied employment or promotion, even fired, because of the way they chose to wear their hair. This was said by a senator in California named Holly Mitchell. She says she has heard too many reports of black children humiliated and sent home from school because their natural hair was deemed unruly or a distraction to others. Los Angeles Democrat Senator Hawley Mitchell introduced a bill earlier last year that protects the right of black Californians to choose to wear their hair in its natural form without pressure to conform to Eurocentric norms. She said the bill was about inclusion, pride, and choice. According to the law, workplace dress code and grooming policies that prohibit natural hair, including afros, braids, twists, and locks, 
have a disparate impact on black individuals as these policies are more likely to deter black applicants and burden or punish black employees than any other group. We must put an emphasis on the fact that people are being discriminated against in all forms of our society. The fact that she had to make a bill to protect people from being discriminated against based on their hair is despicable. Similar bills have had to be brought in New Jersey and New York, but we need nationwide protections. There is a crisis of disrespect and lack of empathy for black women in America. This can be echoed in the fact of the sheer number of missing black women and women of color in the United States. In 2018, 230,302 women of color were reported missing. Of that group, 170,523 were under the age of 18. These numbers and cases were grossly underreported in the news. One way that we can combat this is to increase diversity in the newsroom. Issues like these, not receiving appropriate news coverage, is a disservice to all Americans. When news editors, newsrooms, and anchors all tend to be white and tend to be male, the stories tend to be centered around male whiteness. With a diverse staff, a wider range of stories can be told. In 2012, Black Lives Matter grew as a message and a movement after Trayvon Martin was murdered. In 2014, we marched because Eric Gardner couldn't breathe. We marched for Michael Brown. We marched for Tamir Rice. In 2015, we marched for Walter Scott. We marched for Freddie Gray. We marched for Sandra Bland. In 2016, we marched for Alton Sterling and Philando Castillo. In 2018, we marched for Stephon Clark. In 2020, we marched for George Floyd. We marched for Breonna Taylor. We marched for Ahmaud Arbery. We march for Tony McDade. Black people are three times more likely to be killed by police. 99% of police killings since 2013 resulted in officers being charged with no crime. The behavior of the police is unforgivable. Men, women, and children beaten with batons. Men, women, and children shot with rubber bullets. Men, women, and children tear-gassed and thrown into cramp buses for hours during a pandemic by the people sworn to protect them. We exoticize black culture, but we don't value black life. We profit off black culture, but we don't value black life. The system would rather lock black people in cages than let them breathe. The system would rather shoot black people than let them protest injustice. And what was their crime? Peacefully protesting? Breaking curfew? What excuse can you make to clear your conscience of this? In cities around the country, we are seeing countless videos surfacing of innocent, peaceful protesters being beaten, being tear gassed, being maced, being shot with rubber bullets. There are actions that have taken place off camera that we will never know of. Rest in peace to Sarah Grossman, whose protest group was tear-gassed and triggered her asthma, and she eventually died. She died from police brutality at a protest against police brutality. 
this is the situation we are faced with. If the police stopped these actions tomorrow, we would still need justice for the actions of the days before. We have years worth of violence to deal with, and marching is not the end of the fight, but the beginning. The mayor of every city that allowed this should be held accountable and should be ashamed. The governor of every state that allowed this should be held accountable and ashamed. The police chief and the police forces that have taken part and who have rationalized this police violence should be held accountable and ashamed. Where are the people who defend our constitution? Where are our brother in arms? The freedom of speech in this country is being impeded. Why are we not together on this? Police brutality is not just an American problem, just as racism is not just an American problem. These are global problems. Freedom, justice, equality, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for all people are at stake, from civil rights to human rights. In the 1960s, Malcolm X posed the question of if we needed a new party or a new army. He adopted the Organization for Afro-American Unity. We need to rally behind his message and create politicians and governance that works for us, by us. To bring about the freedom of our people by any means necessary. The Charter of the United Nations, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the Constitution of America, and the Bill of Rights. All together, these documents can represent the practice of human decency. But these practices are being tarnished by those with power and those who maintain it. By submerging all of our differences, by listening to and by learning from our leaders of the past and establishing non-sectarian constructive programs for human rights, we can fight these problems. Congressman Joyce Beatty was maced by police while trying to help the very same people who attacked her. Black women have been left out of the conversation of leadership and the fight for equality for too long, and I want to be sure that I do my best that this stops. Black women have been the backbone of every major fight for freedom and the women who are fighting and who are bleeding for us. Learn about Fannie Lou Hamer and the Mississippi Democratic Freedom Party and the work she did to pr promote black voices in government. Learn about Ella Baker and her promotion of collective leadership and how we should deprioritize charismatic leaders and that the people should be in charge. This failure to acknowledge black women and black women and men in government is also why there is no faith in our institutions. An elected official of the United States of America was attacked by the police. Where is the news coverage? Where are her colleagues? Where is the nation? We elected her to lead us and they attacked her. This is domestic terrorism. 33 seats are up for re-election in 2020, 21 Republican and 12 Democrats. We already know we have to vote the Republicans out, but I want to be clear. If those 12 Democrat seats don't make a clear statement on this side of history, which they are on, we might have to vote them out too. We must fight together on all fronts. Malcolm X was a black nationalist freedom fighter. My political, economic, and social philosophy are based on his and his teachings of black nationalism. When we fight, we fight together. We fight our common enemy, which is racist, white, hetero, male patriarchy. We must know what politics play in our lives. We must know what role they play in our lives. If we don't, we will be continuously misguided and mistreated by the system. 
we need to carry out a program of re-education, creating politically conscious, politically mature youth so we can elect the right politicians, whoever they might be. We need to own and operate the economy of our communities. A group of abolitionists created an eight-point plan called Eight to Abolition, where they call for the defunding of the police, demilitarizing of communities, removing police from schools, freeing people from jails and prisons, repealing laws, criminalizing survival, investing in community self-governments, providing safe housing for everyone, and investing in care, not police. These are the types of laws and legislation that should be being proposed right now. Where is the leadership in our government? We have to educate our people, reinvest in our communities, reinvest in black people. Political oppression, economic exploitation, and social degradation, all from the same enemy. The government has failed us. Let's talk about self-defense. Self-preservation is the first law of nature. We assure the right to self-defense. The second, the second Amendment allows every citizen to bear arms. Americans are given that right under our Constitution. You allowed white male protesters armed for war to protest at a state building. It was their right to free speech and their right to bear arms, so it was allowed. In case you are unaware of the history of violence against black protectors and our right to self-defense, I want to tell you about the villainizing of the Black Panther Party movement and a government organization called COINTELPRO. COINTELPRO stands for Counterintelligence Program and was a secret FBI project created by J. Edgar Hoover. The purpose of this organization was to spy on, infiltrate progressive activist movements with a particularly sinister emphasis on black civil rights leaders and the Black Panthers. Some of examples of what this organization did were telling KKK-affiliated cops when Freedom Riders would be coming through so they could prepare for them, discrediting Black Panther leaders in their own communities. They would do so by painting them as snitches or FBI collaborators or spreading other toxic rumors so they couldn't be trusted. They forced rifts between coalitions with the same values. And for the majority of the white masses, they portrayed the Black Panthers and the Civil Rights Movement as violent, disruptive threats which needed constant police control. I want you to hear the similarities clearly. The only reason we know of these facts and we know that this organization exists and know this is not some clickbait internet jabroni jargon, this is true facts. The only reason we have this knowledge is because a group of activists broke into an FBI field office in Pennsylvania and stole the documents, some of which revealed the existence of the then-secret COINTELPRO operations. Go research some of these atrocities on your own. The reason that I tell you about the terrors of COINTELPRO is because they were worried about what the revolutionaries were bringing. They were bringing change to this country. Huey Newton and Bobby Seale founded the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense in 1966. Their party sought to establish revolutionary socialism through mass organizing and community-based programs. Let us educate ourselves and continue their work. I have included their 10-point program, a history of the Black Panthers, and the rules of the Black Panther Party in the description of this podcast. I urge you to read them. Go learn about the murder of Fred Hampton at 20 years of age. Go learn about the murder of UCLA students in their classrooms just for being Black Panthers. Go learn about the atrocities of the past because they are returning in the present. 
The country tells us we have the freedom of speech and the right to protest. But they arrest us for doing so. They put curfews in place to arrest and beat our people. We must protect the black men and the black women who are living in a state of terrorism in this country. The law should respect and protect black people. We need to have public court hearings addressing these issues. Nothing should be done in private. We need accountability. When the president referred to activists and protesters as domestic terrorists, he made it clear as day what side of history he would choose to be on. The ACLU has sued the city of Los Angeles for the curfews. They have sued Donald Trump for his use of federal agents to destroy a peaceful protest. I want to see what comes of these suits. What was done to the protesters around this country was inhumane, and I hope similar suits are being filed with the United Nations for the crimes against humanity being committed here in the United States. Donate your money. Donate your time. Use your voice. Speak openly in public. Speak openly in private. Use your privilege to help bring understanding to those living in the dark. Malcolm X once said if he's not ready to clean his own house, maybe he shouldn't have a house. Maybe it should catch fire and burn down. These were the words that he used to, spoke, to speak upon white people choosing where they stand. I think this sentence rings true today. The only way we defeat this evil is become, by coming together against a common enemy. Our enemies are within our midst. We must identify and we must address them. If we want action, we need to be organized. Today is a time to stop singing and start swinging, as Malcolm X once so eloquently put it. And I want to make a clear point that us as white liberals have failed the black people of our country. We need to stop asking to help and begin doing the work required to bring justice and change to this country. If you aren't black, at this point, you should be thinking black. Once you change your philosophy, you change your thought pattern. Once you change your thought pattern, you change your attitude. Once you change your attitude, you change your behavior pattern. And once your behavior and pattern has changed, you go into action. Sit-ins are no longer enough. We've been sitting for long enough. It's time to do some standing and some fighting. People don't get freedom from sitting around. They get it from fighting back. I think if we all start thinking in terms of black nationalism, we can begin to deconstruct the system of oppression. We are living in a hypocritical colonial power. We treat black people in this country like second class citizens. White people who are afraid of violence, you must see the hypocrisy of this. It is black people who are the ones who have been facing the violence. There is no history of violence of black people towards white people. There is a deep history of violence of white people against black people. There are many ways that you can protest if you are unable to march for whatever reason that might be. I hope to provide some tools here today that you can use to re-educate yourself, re-educate your family, share resources on social media, donate to the cause, call your local state representatives, and vote. We need to vote. People are fighting against racism. Angela Davis once said, if the last four years are any indication of what is to come during the next four years, we can indeed predict a very catastrophic period within the history of this country. We have a very difficult road ahead of us, but one that must be taken for the better of all. 
if we look into the past, if we look at Nazi Germany, we can see that the function of racism can be very similar to the function of anti-Semitism and promoting and encouraging fascism and allowing fascism to develop to its full-blown state. As the masses of Germans were busy being anti-Semitic, the German capitalists were squeezing more blood and sweat out of them. And if white people in this country aren't careful, that is exactly what is going to happen here. There has already been a wage freeze. There has already been massive unemployment. We have to put all these things together to see where we're going. Angela, Dav Angela Davis said this in 1972. Let's try to talk about some of the very real indications of developing fascism. In cities around the country, police are unleashing violence upon our citizens with batons, tear gas, rubber bullets. Tear gas is a war crime. If this was actually considered to be a war, but this is not considered a war in the United States, so we will consider it a crime against humanity. Asheville police surrounded a medical station created by protesters and stabbed water bottles with knives, tipped over tables of medical supplies with food on June 2, 2020. The stations they attacked were approved by the city. These would be war crimes if this was considered a war, but for now let's consider them crimes against humanity. 57 police resigned in Buffalo, New York after two officers were suspended for almost killing an innocent 75-year-old man, leaving him bleeding on the floor without rendering aid. The officers who resigned said the two men were just following orders. This is an important and critical point that needs to be emphasized. The idea of inflicting evil because of following orders is one of the most direct warning signs we can see in both racism and fascism. When white people were telling black people they couldn't sit at restaurant counters, they were following the law. When they told them they couldn't use the bathrooms or a sick, twisted shit, they said they were following the law. This is what happens with structural and institutional racism. And this is what is leading our country closer and closer into fascism. The system itself is flawed. The president himself declared anti-fascists publicly as domestic terrorists. He has never once condemned white supremacists, but he declared anti-fascists domestic terrorists. The police who attacked and beat protesters during curfews were allegedly following the law. The president is enforcing anger towards protesters and fueling anger and violence. The police are on the edge because they feel our anger. They feel what is happening in the streets. They were told by their leaders to keep people off the streets. A defenseless man walks up to them to talk to them and they strike him to the ground. This is what they were told to do by the government and the people they've trusted for their whole lives. Now I'm in no shape or form whatsoever saying these, this excuses the cops' behavior. No way, shape, or form am I saying this excuses them. What I am trying to show you is the horrors of racism. That they run so deep that these men were conditioned from the time they were brought into the school system. They learned a history where presidents owned slaves and were not condemned for it. Where a genocide was committed against Native Americans and was never condemned. Where black people are marginalized and treated as second class citizens from a history of slavery to one of Jim Crow segregation de degradation. Where the president doesn't even speak on what is happening. He's actively making it worse. And now these men police our streets. Sworn to serve and protect people they've been taught to hate. It's ingrained. It's within the very fabric of the country. The very first step to address this fact is to admit it. Internalize it. 
And then you can begin to deconstruct your own racism and your own prejudice. Because until you admit it is within you, you can never help remove it from someone else or from our society. Black and brown, Asian and Native American people have always been the first victims of oppression and repression in this country. But white people, particularly white working class people, you need to realize that these same systems are being used to oppress you. We need to learn from the horrors of countries where fascism was allowed to fully form, like World War II Italy or Nazi Germany, and we need to stop it from growing while we have the chance in our country. But that point is getting nearer and nearer. There is an attempt on Donald Trump's behalf to turn white people against black people. We have to connect the violence against black people to the rhetoric of this president using to describe protesters around this country and his unwillingness to address white supremacy and racism in this country. In the words of the legend and oral historian Benji de la Piedra, nonviolent activists have always demanded for the powerful to willingly give up power, but not accountability. This means in many cases you start by validating black people's perceptions, even if you don't share them. Listening to their elaboration, even if you think you already understand them. It means putting resources into the creation of a position within your administration that will diligently coordinate the many changes that need to take place across all industries over the coming years. It means you become willing to go to bat for those needs against influential parties who may be even more resistant than you are to a meaningful program of anti-racist institutional reform. If Hollywood and the many other industries who are truly serious about confronting and dismantling white supremacy, if they are truly intent on aligning themselves with the Black Lives Matter movement, they must first reavow their situation within the United States of America. That means avowing this country's histories of power and oppression, desegregation, resegregation, and resistance, and its ethics of common decency, creative genius, and cultural pluralism. Make a concerted effort to go beyond the too easy discourse of diversity to one of equity and increase the proportion of black entertainers, agents, executives, and entrepreneurs and leaders across all industry. To all my protesters risking their lives to march during a pandemic, I thank you and know that your bravery and your courage do not go unseen by the world. To all the allies silently donating or fighting against prejudiced family members, thank you, stay strong, and stay motivated. To those who want to do more, I suggest re-educating yourself in black thought and black history. Learn from the leaders of the past. I've heard numerous times that we, ha you know, we have no leaders. Where are leaders? We had leaders. They assassinated them. Learn about Malcolm X and Dr. King. Learn about the Black Panther Party. Learn about Marcus Garvey. Learn about leaders that are still with us, like Angela Davis. Read the writings of authors and poets like Langston Hughes and Maya Angelou, James Baldwin and Zora Neale Hurston. Hear their stories and internalize their lessons and their wisdom. I will share some links in, in the description, but please go out and learn more. If you want to do more within your government, call your elected officials. You can look up how to contact them online by putting find my representative in the state you live in. Call their office. Ask what bills they voted on. 
that involve policing the police. If they voted on none or they won't tell you, call another office. Find what progressive legislation has been authored and who voted on it and who voted against it. And let's get some leaders in office that will support the movement. Support your local Black Lives Matter chapter. Support community bail funds. Educate your family and support black business. Keep fighting, stay strong, and stay motivated. To everyone in this battle, we will win the fight against oppression and tyranny united. Together we will stand. United they will fall. Black lives matter. And to stand against injustice and demonstrate a strong, unwavering stance against hate, that means black LGBTQ plus lives matter. It means black trans lives matter. It means all black lives matter. And I hope for a day where we will know that sentence rings true in the eyes of the law and of all people. Thank you so much for tuning in. This was Living With Will. Okay. I say real niggas ain't a dime a dozen Just cause you was hanging with your cousin Boy that shit don't make you real And the feel is hotter than the oven Gotta keep the heater for them sucker niggas Out here trying steal, kill Every snitch walk and tell them line up You can pick me out a billion nigga line up Cause I stand out, I don't need no handouts You ain't want me back then thinking I'm the man now Cause I'm the man now, I don't understand now Never thought about me wanting to be part of my plans now You a fan now, tell me how you ran down on me at my show Trying to see me when you can now I can now, but back then I was unable to save you Tell me what you bringing to the table Bitches come from different angles And if we in the jungle, I'm a bangle And if you wanna rumble, I'll hang you Thank you, I appreciate your true concern New mistakes that I'ma make ain't shit if I don't learn nothing Burn something, we smoking and wait your turn Been waiting on your return The only thing that I yearn for I turn towards the sky and the light Getting lost in the stars Go to Mars for the night The Jews and the cars And the loss of the art isn't right That's why I keep my bars so precise Nice